0: Hey everyone, and welcome back to your Linux and open source news podcast. Uh, In this episode, we have a bunch of stuff. We have more Red Hat shakeups. No, this time it's not like reacting through weird blog posts. It's actual action uh, from Alma Linux, but also mainly from SUSE, which will now be creating their own one-to-one compatible distro with Red Hat Enterprise Linux which means they will still offer SUSE Enterprise Linux, but they will also have a direct competitor to Red Hat for the community, which is a big move, and it has $10 of funding. Uh, We also have the official release of Mint 21.2, so we'll talk about that just a little bit, because we already covered it pretty well before. We have the release of Thunderbird 115, also called the Supernova release, which is a complete redesign of the app, which I've been using and is pretty awesome, We have Linux passing 3% market share. We have China releasing their first from scratch Linux distro and a lot more stuff. So as always, all the links I use to make this podcast are in the description of the show and all the links to support the show are also in the show notes. So let's get started. So let's begin with the big one, the continuation of the Red Hat shakeup. So if you have been following this, you know that Red Hat has taken steps to restrict access to the exact source code they use to build a Red Hat Enterprise Linux, you can still figure it out using their Docker images or or just grabbing the right patches from the CentOS repos. But it's much much harder to build a one to one compatible distro with Red Hat Enterprise Linux. And Alma Linux and Rocky Linux have both made announcements. Rocky Linux will keep functioning as they were. Alma Linux has just announced that they would not be one-to-one compatible anymore with Red Hat Enterprise Linux, but that they will be ABI compatible, which means that you will be able to run any app that runs perfectly on Red Hat Enterprise Linux on Alma Linux exactly the same, but they will not have bug-for-bug compatibility. So they will be able to fix bugs outside of Rails' release schedule, uh, but that's about it. So they don't they don't really seem to know exactly where they're going. They're still figuring things out, but I think they just decided that, you know what, it's not worth it to completely retool everything just to keep cloning a distro that well doesn't want us to clone it. Uh, so they took another path. And uh, they also announced that they would keep contributing to Fedora and CentOS, probably because, well, Fedora contributes indirectly to CentOS, and CentOS is also what they will probably be basing themselves off. So, normal. But the most important announcement is from SUSE, the German company that makes SUSE Enterprise Linux, as well as OpenSUSE, Leap, and Tumbleweed. They are a major provider of Enterprise Linux and also community distros and they announced that they will be forking Red Hat Enterprise Linux to create and maintain a Red Hat compatible distribution, bug-for-bug compatible one-to-one, with an investment of more than $10 million, which is 10 times more than what Alma Linux had pledged yearly uh, to be a one-to-one compatible uh, system with RHEL. They will provide this system side-by-side with all their usual SUSE offerings, so it doesn't mean that OpenSUSE is going away. It doesn't mean that Tumbleweed, Leap or, or general SUSE Enterprise Linux is going away. They all stay. It's just another thing. And they say it will help reinforce the values of open source software and that it will offer more choice without restrictions from for consumers. So they will provide that fork to the community without any licensing agreement, without anything weird to sign. It's just... A clone of Red Hat Enterprise Linux, like what people wanted since CentOS, uh, the normal CentOS was discontinued. So I don't know if they're going to find a business model in there or if they don't care about that. If they just want to be a good open source citizen and help people just have a strongly backed, uh, trustworthy alternative. Uh, I don't know. Uh, but thats they're, they're not kidding around with this. And I think they just saw an opportunity to regain market share uh, from, from Red Hat by just introducing people to the SUSE community through their distro and maybe in the future interest people to move to SUSE. Or maybe they will provide services around this clone. I don't really know exactly what they plan to do, but it's an interesting one. And I think they just saw an opportunity to just say, you know what, this is our shot at trying to take down uh, Red Hat or at least take them down a peg or two and we're going to take it. Now, there's also a nice uh, snarky uh, blog post from Oracle Linux, which is, if you don't know, a clone of Red Hat Enterprise Linux. They weren't specifically targeted uh, by the blog post by Red Hat, but probably this is the distro they wanted to target the most because this is the most credible and probably the biggest that is probably eating a bit uh, of Red Hat's cake right now. So the corporate, the chief corporate architect, which is always a super ominous title, especially if it's working at Oracle, and the head of development for Oracle Linux, they both wrote a scathing blog post together in which they outline a few of the contributions that Oracle Linux makes to the Linux community and to Linux development. And they also just emphasize the fact that they do not have a subscription agreement that prevents you from using all your GPL rights when you use Oracle Linux. And on top of that, they sort of dismantle the argument that was made by Red Hat that they need to pay their engineers and so they are forced to restrict the rights of their users by saying that Red Hat apparently had no problem uh, paying for their employees uh, while they were staying true to the open source principles before IBM bought them. But that since IBM bought them, suddenly they had troubles uh, paying their engineers. I think it's a bit far-fetched. Like, it's it's a free kick, basically. It's not it's not really that true or nice. Uh, probably the, the real reason is that they didn't need to worry about competitive competitors' distros stealing their lunch when they were making their own, which was CentOS. From the moment they removed CentOS as a one-to-one compatible distro with RHEL, Well, competitors started to emerge, and now instead of just remaking their own official clone for the community, they just let things faster and they decide to try and block people. And so, the end result is that a lot more people are, and more credible and more well funded people are now on the offensive on the same front. And Oracle concludes on a cheeky note Uh, they're telling IBM to pull. The source code for RHEL from Oracle Linux if they don't want to hire anyone uh, and just become a downstream distributor of uh, Oracle Linux, which is very snarky, obviously not going to happen. But yeah, it's it's fun when you're sort of, let's not say cheering, but applauding Oracle Linux for doing better than Red Hat, like in what, what a weird world we'll live in. But yeah, it looks like Red Hat, by just trying to prevent the community and some companies from eating their cake, actually made sure that everyone else got a slice too. They basically created a bigger problem than existed before. It's no longer just a PR disaster for Red Hat. It is a big business risk that they've created for themselves. And honestly, it can only result in the Linux ecosystem being a bit more damaged and fragmented and problematic. Because, of course, if Red Hat loses money and that money is taken by someone else, there's no guarantee that this someone else will contribute as much to other unrelated uh, non-enterprise projects. So, yeah, if Red Hat loses money, the whole Linux community loses developers, which is not fantastic, basically. Now we also have the release of Linux Mint 21.2 so at the moment I'm recording this they haven't posted the official announcement blog post but the stable releases ISOs have been published to the mirrors so basically we know that yes the release is incoming either today it's Friday or tomorrow when you're going to be listening to this on Saturday and yeah it's a big release uh as, as usual with Mint, they have smaller version numbers. It's 21.2, but it's basically a major version. And it's been a bit less than a month in beta, but that's generally the case with Linux Mint. Their, their betas are basically stable releases or, or pretty much close to that. So we already talked a lot about uh, Linux Mint 21.2. I'll just sum up very quickly the, the, the changes so you know what to expect. And I'll leave a link to a video I made about all these changes for Linux Mint Cinnamon, XFC, and Mate. Uh, I'll leave that in the show notes if you want to learn more. So this new version has first a new style manager that lets you quickly switch to a dark mode, lets you use accent colors, lets you change the whole look of the desktop. Uh, and the dark mode support is done through portals. So apps from toolkits, from other toolkits like GTK 4 or Qt will also follow the dark mode as well. The accent colors that you can pick are now also used a lot more throughout the system. Uh, Your folders will use that. Uh, The tooltips will also use these accent colors. And notifications will also display this color, not entirely, just as a thin strip uh, on the top of the notification. Of course, if you prefer using accent colors just for what you selected and you want your your folders, icons, to be another color, you can still change that. You can still completely tailor every single element and choose a specific theme for each of them. Apart from that, they have improved flat pack support. Across the whole desktop, there are some updates to the default apps, most notably the image viewer and the photo manager, which gets more format support and a new UI with a header bar, plus a lot of performance improvements. And of course, there are the XFC and Mate editions of Mint 21.2, only the xfc edition will bring a new desktop environment version they're moving from xfc 4.16 to 4.18 which basically overhauls the whole file manager it's it's the big focus for 4.18 you get a much much better file manager with more options an image preview pane the ability to undo and redo with notifications a lot a lot of stuff uh, in there and for the mate edition of linux mint You don't get a new version of Mate. It's still, I think, 1.26. There have been no new versions since 1.26. Mate moves very, very slowly in terms of how they evolve. Uh, So you get the same exact experience without a few specific cinnamon changes uh, that you don't get either on XFC or on Mate. But they're still pretty good editions. There's no news yet on the Linux Mint Debian edition. Generally, it comes a month or two after the official release. Uh, It's still not their main development platform, but it will come. And it will probably be based on Debian 12, I I would hope or think. Uh, The rest of the Mint 21.2 editions are based on Ubuntu 22.04. They will not have a new rebase until uh, 24.04, which will be the next Ubuntu LTS, on which Mint will base themselves, unless they plan to move to a Debian base uh, fully and remove the Ubuntu-based editions. Who knows? Uh, A lot of stuff can happen in about a year. So as I said, I have a video which will showcase Way better than in a podcast. All the visual changes that you can find in a Linux Mint. Uh, there's a link to it in the show notes. Now, another big, big update is Thunderbird. And if you have used Thunderbird in the past, you might love its user interface. I personally always thought it was very old. Uh, it was aging. It was not super legible. It was too dense. It was too complicated. It was kind of messy. You opened tabs everywhere. You didn't really know where you were going. There were elements everywhere. And if you just wanted a simple email and calendar experience all in one app with your contacts, it was not the best choice because it, it, there was too much information clutter. So they redesigned it entirely. It's the results of, I think, a full year of work. Uh, and it's Thunderbird version 1.15. The code name is Supernova. And they basically redesigned the whole app from the ground up and it looks absolutely fantastic. So for now, uh, it seems you can only get it as an archive with a portable executable. Uh, They plan to have a version on Flathub. They took ownership of the Thunderbird Flatpak and so they will publish a Flatpak version. Maybe as you will be listening to this, it will be available right now when I'm recording it. It's not yet on Flathub. And of course distributions will want to package it themselves at some point but probably not before the next fixed releases. Uh, I also heard that some distros would keep uh, Thunderbird 1.02 because why would you want to upgrade to a better looking, better designed version I guess. Uh, I'm I'm sure some people will argue that they can't find what they what they want, that the new UI is not good. I completely disagree. It's just a matter of changing your habits, but yeah, you know what? It's okay if you still want to use 1.02. It will be supported. For a long time still, Uh, they're not forcing anyone to update to 1.15. There's no no problem here. So what can you expect from that new update? Well, first, it looks a lot more at home on GNOME. It gets sort of a header bar, basically, which is super simple out of the box. There's just a unified search bar and a hamburger menu and the close button, of course. Uh, But you can completely customize that bar if you want. You can right-click it and add every button you might want to add to this Uh, by default this header bar is context sensitive which means that if you're in the contacts or if you're in the email or if you're in the calendar you won't get the exact same button layout so you only get the actions that you actually need in the context you're in but you can definitely still completely customize things and change things up and if you prefer having the traditional menu bar with file edit select and stuff like that you can still enable that as well so Basically, you can revert to the previous interface if you prefer. There's also a better sidebar, which lets you switch from the various uh, options, well, not options, contexts of the app. So email, calendar, contacts, and stuff like that, RSS. Uh, It looks better. It's more distinct from the content. It looks good. And uh, you also have the choice between three information density modes now uh, from the hamburger menu, uh, which means you can have the interface as packed with information as you want, or as padded as you want uh, to be more legible, but also you're not going to display as many emails or calendar appointments or stuff like that. You get a new folder and tag sidebar in the email part of the app, which means that you can sort your folders better. It's more legible. It doesn't look like a a directory tree, which I always felt was pretty weird for a mail app because would you really have like three or five folders deep, directory structure instead of just maybe two uh, in terms of depth, two or three folders. I don't know anyone who orders their mails with like five or six levels of depth, but maybe maybe it exists and you can still do it. But the default view will be more useful and more suited to how most people use their email, which is you have an archive folder and you dump everything in there and you use search to find what you're looking for. Uh, It's, in my opinion, way clearer than the previous view. There's a modernized view uh, for the emails using cards instead of just regular one-line emails. It's optional. It's disabled by default in my experience. Uh, But I think it looks much better. And it also lets you preview more of the email uh, before you click on it, which is nice. There's a much better address book. It's mainly just layout stuff for the address book. It's just like information for contacts. It's just way more legible. The contact pages are better. There's better keyboard navigation throughout all the app. And there's a revamped calendar that is a lot easier to parse than the previous ones. It's less completely charged with elements and visual stuff. It's just way more legible. So I've been test driving this Thunderbird release as my main email client and calendar uh, since it was released. So it's only been a few days. But I can safely say that they nailed this thing. It is now a lot better to use as someone who... Really could not use Thunderbird before before because it was so confusing. It was just, there was just too much everywhere. And this new release really makes me feel like I can use this full time. Uh, like this is going to be my main email and calendar client. I'm still not a big fan of the fact that it opens tabs for everything. I would just much rather have a single view and it switches from that or at least an option to enable that. Uh, just having one page and it just displays what I clicked on in that page and doesn't open tabs. But I can understand why it's there. It's a productivity feature. And yeah, I would just wish an option to disable that or maybe a plugin in the future. But that's just me. It's just great. And if you prefer the older Thunderbird version, with a little bit of time, you can probably just revert to to how it looked before. You can enable the menu bar. You can lower the information density. You can keep the one line email view. You can add the buttons you want. It's. I don't really think it should hurt anyone's productivity. But if you've been using Thunderbird, the previous version, and the new one doesn't cut it for you, don't hesitate to let me know. Uh, there's a comment section on the podcast website, uh, podcast.thelinusexp.com, where you can just let me know what you think. Or if you're on Mastodon or any other activity pub-enabled service, you can also comment directly under the post from the podcast. Uh, so let me know what you think if you're a long-time Thunderbird user. My views are from someone who hasn't used Thunderbird because the interface was not good enough for me. So of course I will find this release way better. But if you prefer the old one, let me know why, because uh, that's always interesting. Now the Linux desktop is still growing. Apparently it has finally reached 3% market share in the desktop operating systems uh, well, market. And it's still extremely small compared to Windows uh, and even compared to macOS. But it's still a giant milestone because we've been stagnating around 2% for about a decade. So finally cracking 3% is cool. Uh, Now, what could have driven uh, this, this increase? Some people suggest the Steam Deck, but I personally do not think that's it. Uh, because this statistic is communicated by StatCounter. It's a website that aggregates data, but it uses web analytics from web browsers. So I am pretty sure most people do not regularly browse the web on their Steam Decks. Uh, This is just Linux web browsers on Linux desktops. So I don't think the Steam Deck has any part in this really. But that does make it very interesting, because if we include the Steam Deck in there, the numbers are probably higher. There's like 3 million more users that use the Steam Deck probably around daily. Uh, So that's a lot more market share that they could grab. And, well, would you consider the Steam Deck a desktop or not? That's up to you. Personally, I wouldn't, because it's not meant to be. It's an appliance for gaming, which you can also use as a desktop, but it's not its main purpose. So I wouldn't count it in. Uh, So we still have Windows at 68% and macOS at 21%, sorry. And Chrome OS is still higher than Linux at 4.15. Again, there's a debate uh, whether you should count Chrome OS in the Linux segment because you can run any app uh, for Linux on Chrome OS except the user has to do something to enable that. So personally, I would not count Chrome OS as a regular Linux distro. I think it's normal to have it split. Uh, but if you want to count them, then it means that the Linux desktop is now at seven point fifteen percent of the market share, which is not bad at all. And it might be a fluke. Uh, this might not be this might just be a a statistical error this month where I don't know something was reported as being Linux when it wasn't. We don't know it will also maybe keep increasing in the future. We don't really know. And this is not a number that you can just take at face value. It's not an interesting number in itself. What's interesting is the progression of that number. As always, with any statistical tracking method, what's interesting is not that, hey, it's 3%. Is that we have grown from, well, let's say 2.5, five years ago, to 3%, which is faster than what we usually grow. That's that's the interesting statistic that you have to use there, not the exact 3%. And you, you might also consider that this number is not accurate because a lot of browsers might not report themselves as running on Linux. And some websites that are popular among Linux users might not report any analytics data to StatCounter. Maybe they just count data that is on websites that, is, that are used mainly by Windows or macOS users and not Linux users. We don't know. So it's not an absolute number. It's just a sign that, yes, the Linux desktop is growing. And that's always nice to see. We, we won't beat any other major operating system anytime soon. But the bigger we are, the better our chances are to be supported by more apps and more like major developers, which is always a good sign. But in terms of growth of the Linux desktop, we might have an ace in the in the sleeve. Is that how you say it? Uh, because China has a plan to move away from Windows. They've had that for a while. Uh, They asked a lot of national companies to work on a Linux-based operating system that China would use, or maybe they would use multiple Linux-based operating systems to completely replace Windows. Because yes, the West has Chinese paranoia, but China also gets Western paranoia and they don't want to use Windows, uh, when they could use a homegrown system like they've done for basically every other technological product uh, they, they sell and use, it's a two way street. Everybody hates everyone the same. It's wonderful. And so now China has a new interesting option. It's called Open Kylin or Open Chilin. I'm not really sure how you're supposed to pronounce it. It's K Y L I N, but I don't know how you're supposed to pronounce that in Chinese. Uh, It's a Linux distro that's been worked on by a community of more than 4,000 developers. And they have their first 1.0 version out. And what's interesting is that it's a Linux from scratch version. There was actually a lot of debate around that. I found uh, people who were saying that it was Ubuntu-based. But the general consensus seems to be that no, it's actually built from scratch. Which is interesting because they're finally reaching the the technological independence that they want. They're not basing themselves off of the repos of another distro or the work of another distro based in the Western world. They're building this one from scratch themselves. Now, interestingly, they have an English version for the installer and it sort of looks like a mix between Deepin and Windows 11. Uh, It looks really good. There's a lot of transparency. There's a lot of cool stuff. It has a very Windows-like layout. And it seems to use the UK UI desktop, something that I have never heard about and never used, but does look pretty nice. So maybe I should give it a shot at some point on the channel, just to see, like, what people have been using that I didn't know about. By default, they ship Firefox as the web browser and WPS Office, which is a proprietary office suite uh, developed by a Chinese developer that you can install on any Linux system. It's actually a pretty good office suite uh, if you're not adverse to Chinese software. And they also have Android app support as well, baked in. Uh, Of course, the people who tested the distro did so in a VM, so they couldn't get it running. But if I give it a shot, I will give it a shot on real hardware, so maybe we'll be able to to do that. It supports uh, multiple architectures, RISC-V, x86, and ARM. And it also looks like it has a tablet interface as well, not just a desktop mode, for people who will run it on this form factor. So it's very interesting. I don't know if this will be the official choice for China. I don't know if China will have, like, this is our official Chinese distro that we will run in every government-related building and computer. But maybe they just want to have multiple operating system projects competing in the country. But what is certain is that they do not want Windows anymore. And, I mean, I can't blame them, although their reasons for not wanting Windows are probably not the same as mine. But, I mean, it's a country that's been completely isolating itself from the wider internet, from the wider uh, technological evolutions. They, they create their own technology and they use their own technology and they export their own technology. They don't want to use uh, stuff made by what they see as competing countries or even sometimes enemies. So it's only normal that the operating system that runs their computers and tablets and stuff like that, Would be uh, made in house uh, in China by Chinese developers. So maybe I'll give it a shot on one of my computers just to see what they've done, like the software they use, the kernel versions, uh, how it looks, how it feels to use. I'm expecting the usual, like, sort of weirdly translated Chinese to English. Uh, with weird turns of phrases, although who am I to talk as a French person, person? see, there you go, that makes a ton of mistake. but yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting, so I'll, I'll definitely give it a shot at some point, I would not keep it installed, because, well, I am not super happy about China's policy about user data, and I'm pretty sure that this OS will collect user data, but I will still give it a shot just for fun. Now, speaking about moving away from Windows but wanting to retain the same functionality, uh, there's a new application that you might be interested in on Linux. Uh, it's a task manager. I often see comments uh, that say like our task managers on Linux are just not as good as the Windows task manager. I would love for it to be on Linux. And so basically now you have it. Uh, it's a. It's of course not made by, by Microsoft, but it's a pretty much carbon copy of the look and features of the Windows task manager. It's made with GTK4 and Libet Vita. And if you look at its performance tab, uh, you will see that it looks very much like the Windows Task Manager. You have some very nice graphs for each of your CPU cores. You have graphs for your RAM, for your disks, for all your disks, for your network. And all of these graphs are rendered using OpenGL, so they don't tax your CPU, so they don't like impede the results uh, that you're seeing. Uh, there's also the usual Apps tab that lets you see everything that's currently running, and all the processes that are currently running, as well as their CPU, memory consumption, and disk usage. The app also lets you monitor GPU usage for AMD and NVIDIA GPUs. There is no Intel GPU support just yet, but they, they say they want to bring it over. And it's nothing revolutionary. It doesn't do a lot more than the default system monitor apps of KDE or GNOME. It probably does less than the KDE System Monitor, which actually lets you build your own pages with your own monitoring information, but it does look very much like the Windows counterpart. So if you're coming from Windows to Linux and you want to gain the exact same experience when you need to shut down something or monitor resource consumption, then Mission Center is probably an app that you might be interested in. It's just a first release, it will get more stuff in the future, and it's available on Flathub already if you want to give it a shot, which I definitely will because it looks interesting. And now it's time to talk about privacy because we always have to have some privacy problems. Uh, So finally, the US and the EU uh, can share data again, which means that uh, US tech companies can now finally grab data from EU citizens and send them over to the US, something that had been blocked since the so-called privacy shield had been judged uh, not sufficient to protect the data from EU citizens. The European Commission now considers that the U.S. ensures an adequate level of protection for the personal data of EU citizens, and the U.S. FTC will be in charge of ensuring that companies will comply with this new framework for data transfers and processing, and the U.S. will have to form a new data protection review court, which EU individuals will have access to, to demand the deletion of their data, to know what has been collected, and to ensure that this data is not being used by the US government because if you don't know the US government has access to all the data that is stored on US servers much like China can request access from Chinese companies to the data that they have stored on their users of course most privacy advocates are not happy about this they don't think uh, the, the framework put in place is sufficient Uh, Max Schrems, which is basically the absolute worst nightmare of most big tech companies when it comes to privacy, says that the U.S. needs big changes in the surveillance laws to make that new framework, well, work and acceptable for the EU. And some EU parliament members also say that there are no meaningful safeguards against the typical U.S. surveillance. And apparently this new framework was lauded and applauded by a lobbying group representing Apple, Google, Meta, Twitter, and a lot of others which are all known for collecting user data and storing it in the US. I am pretty sure that this framework will not be enough if these companies are happy with it. But at least they can keep transferring their data to the US and they can keep operating in the EU. That was a big problem for Meta, for example. Uh, They just... Uh, They just got fined, I think, $1.2 billion uh, for keeping this data transfer between the EU and the US, even though it was not allowed. So they're probably going to be happy to be able to keep doing that without, from what I can see, many changes, apart from the ability for EU citizens to say, hey, would you please delete my data? And having no real proof that it's been done or that this data hasn't been passed on to any other governmental body before. So I guess the goal was to avoid these companies uh, just dropping out from the EU or from some European countries. I guess they just wanted to sign something to make sure they could keep their employees in the EU. Uh, I think that was probably the main factor and privacy was a secondary matter at best. Because, well, from what I read, there are basically no meaningful changes to what the Privacy Shield was doing before. So... I don't really know why they agreed on that. And speaking of collecting data, Google was hit by yet another lawsuit this week for allegedly collecting data from millions of users without any form of consent and violating copyright in the process to train their AI models. Uh, This suit is a class action in the US and it targets Google but also Alphabet, the parent company that owns Google, And DeepMind, which is Google's AI-focused subsidiary, which, if I'm not mistaken, has been accused of working with the US military as well. Uh, It's brought by the same law firm that already brought a suit against OpenAI for similar practices. And at that point, some of you AI enthusiasts might just think, okay, this this is a law firm that is just trying to make a name for themselves in the AI space, just attacking every AI initiative for copyright violation. And that's probably the case. But that doesn't mean that the case doesn't have any merits. I will have to wait for it to be uh, to be well judged, basically. Uh, so the law firm says that Google has been stealing everything ever created and shared on the internet by hundreds of millions of Americans. They're not talking about people outside of the US because, of course, it's a US lawsuit. And they also say that Google is training their barred chatbot with all of this data. Of course, Google answered the claim they stated that they use data from public sources like any information published to the open web. And this is basically confirming what they were accused of because any data published to the open web can be considered public. It's everything ever written, recorded or published, whatever the copyright or license. Everything is public if you don't read the license. And in the meantime, Google's privacy policy explicitly states that Google can use any publicly accessible information to train their AI basically confirming what the suit alleges, if Google's definition of public is wider than what would be acceptable. The law firm answered that by saying, Google needs to understand that publicly available doesn't mean free to use for any purpose, which brings this lawsuit back to the root of all AI-related lawsuits. Is training an AI model a breach of copyright or of the various licenses under which content is published? That's the main question, and that's always the question we'll come back to unless this has a concluded lawsuit with a ruling on that. For now, all the lawsuits that have been brought against AI companies just boil down to the same thing. Are you respecting the license if you use the data to train your algorithm? Are the licenses covering this use case or not? And if not, is it really public if you decide to ignore the license attached to something? It's the same problem with GitHub Copilot. It's the same problem with OpenAI. It's the same problem with uh, every like image-generating AI, like Stable Diffusion or Journey. It's the same problem for any uh, large language model. And until one of these lawsuits has been concluded and has a ruling on it, they will keep popping up against every single AI-related initiative. And of course, even if these lawsuits are, are ruled upon in the U.S., it won't prevent similar suits from popping up everywhere in the world because, well, rulings are different everywhere. So maybe the US will say, you know what, that's okay if it's on the internet. Uh, Training a large language model on public data is not a breach of the license. Maybe the EU will say the opposite. We don't really know. So we'll have to wait uh, until one of these cases gets a ruling. And until then, I will keep reporting on all the major ones that keep popping up. Okay, and let's wrap this up with the gaming news. So first, we have the usual bi-monthly release of Wine, Wine 8.12, which now has the latest patches to support Wayland natively. It is still not able to run a game correctly for you to interact with the game. It will just paint the content of a window, but that's it. You can't run a game with a Wayland native version of Wine. There are also some improvements to Wine D3D, which is the DirectX implementation of Wine, which does the same thing as DXVK, and there are also 31 bug fixes, including for StarCraft 2, Excel 2016, and a bunch of Windows apps, because we often forget that Wine is not just for video games, it's also for any Windows program. And well, this time it's mainly for specific programs and not specific games. Now, AMD also open sourced their Fidelity FX SDK. Uh, This is a toolkit that lets developers implement stuff in their games like visual effects, uh, like blur, like depth of field, like variable shading, and a lot more that I have absolutely no idea what they do. Uh, But it also lets developers implement FSR1 and FSR2 in their games. So it's nice to have the SDK completely open source. And apparently they provided a lot of documentation about it to make sure that people can actually use it, and they have complete pre-built solutions, to help developers implement all these effects in their games and their code. They actually say that most of these effects can now be implemented using less than 20 lines of code, which should make this thing a lot more appealing. And there's been a lot of debates on FSR versus DLSS. The consensus seems to be that FSR is not as good as DLSS, and I would answer that it's actually much better because it can run everywhere. Uh, You can run FSR on NVIDIA GPUs, on AMD GPUs, on Intel GPUs, even on integrated APUs. DLSS only runs on NVIDIA GPUs. So yeah, it's better by default and it wins because it's compatible with everything. Uh, This debate was sparked uh, when uh, Starfield announced that they would be working with AMD and as such would not be providing uh, DLSS to their users. And people were mad, the, the ones that have NVIDIA GPUs. But everybody else, including Linux users, is probably way happier. Because it means that on a Steam Deck, if Starfield is able to run, you will have native FSR. If you are just gaming on Linux in general, you will have native FSR from the game. And basically everyone will have upscaling instead of just NVIDIA users having this solution. Of course, they could have implemented the two solutions side-by-side, DLSS and FSR. But maybe it's just better to implement one that works everywhere instead of just using a lot of time to support like half of the user base and the other solution that would support everyone. So, um, end of the tangent (laughs) about these solutions. But as always, props to AMD for making a lot of their stuff open source. They're really today the best option for Linux users, I think. Uh, because even though NVIDIA seems to be taking steps to open source a bunch of their stuff, including a lot of their driver-related code, they they are not supporting an open source driver themselves. Uh, their their driver has not seen a lot of code drops since it was initially dropped on GitHub, and it's not a functional driver for ninety nine percent of people. So, and they're also not providing all of their libraries and everything uh, as open source. So, yeah. I'm, I mean, today, if you're a Linux user, you probably want to go with AMD. Whether it's for CPUs or GPUs, you always get performance boosts uh, with various updates to the kernel. You always get better support. Your your GPU might not work immediately when it's released, but when it works, it will work better. Now, still on the topic of graphics, uh, Meta. Yes, that Meta, well, Facebook basically, uh, released an open source graphics library under the MIT license and it's called IGL, for Intermediate Graphics Library. And the goal is to have some kind of middleman layer uh, that the game developers can use in their games that then connects to the various graphics APIs that the system can have access to, uh, like Vulkan, OpenGL, WebGL, or Metal. It is cross-platform for Android, for iOS, for Linux, macOS, and Windows, and it would let developers implement just that library and let it do the heavy lifting to work on any other platform. Uh, basically, you don't have to support a specific API. You can just use IGL, and it will automatically pick the API that is available, or maybe give the users a choice to use like the best one, or maybe the developer will say, OK, uh, favor Vulkan first, uh, but if Vulkan is not available, use Metal, and if Metal is not available, use OpenGL or WebGL or whatever. It sounds interesting. Uh, we'll have to see if this creates some kind of performance hit, Because, of course, when you're running intermediary code that is then running uh, the Graphics API, you're bound to lose a little bit of performance, and we'll have to see if it supports all the features that developers need to make their games. Uh, Because, generally, these middleman layers have abstractions, and since all Graphics APIs have different levels of feature support, you can't exactly know if they're going to support everything a developer might actually want to use in their games. And of course, the main issue with cross-platform game development is generally more supporting your game on different platforms and not specifically porting the game. It's just like saying, okay, you know what? Now that I have this Linux version, I need to support it, accept bug reports and fix them in a timely manner and bring the DLC in a timely manner and whatever. And of course, uh, IGL will not really help with that. Uh, So it doesn't fix the big problem of porting but it can definitely make porting easier if it's uh, done correctly. And since it's under the MIT license, who cares that it's Meta that developed it. Okay, and finally we have some news about Yuzu, which is the Nintendo Switch emulator. Uh, They've dropped a big blog post full of technical details that I don't quite exactly understand apart from a few things. Uh, but what's what's important to remember is that they just fixed a bunch of rendering bugs for major titles like the latest Pokémon games, uh, Breath of the Wild, Tears of the Kingdom, Mario Odyssey, and more. And they also reduced RAM consumption by 99% for shader recompiling, which should help a lot on RAM-starved systems, and they also improved their OpenGL support, which seems to result in major performance improvements in certain games. They say it's mostly for NVIDIA hardware, but they say they also expect the same improvements with the MESA drivers on Linux. And judging from their graphs, uh, I'd say Pokemon Scarlet could double its FPS, at least on the device they tested it with, and Tears of the Kingdom could get a 40% performance boost. So basically, depending on what you're playing these games on, you can run them way better on an emulator than on the real Switch, which is Always fun to see, like, it's a well-known fact that the Switch is basically a potato computer. It's a 2008 smartphone, basically. Well, I exaggerate. Maybe a 2012 smartphone, basically, inside. It it, it has no right running the games it runs right now, but it still has, like, pretty piss-poor performance, pretty piss-poor resolution, and pretty piss-poor graphical fidelity and details, which is not always important in games, but... Like, this this system needs to have an update soon. So it's always cool that you can play your games that you love on a system that is actually able to run them at a decent resolution with decent frame rates. So yeah, yay for emulators, and I hope they keep living on for a long while. And this will conclude this podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. As always, if you want more details about any of these specific uh, topics, you'll find all the links in the description of the show in the show notes. And if you want to support the podcast, you also have all the links uh, down there as well uh, in your podcast app or on the website. If you want to talk about any of these topics or correct a mistake I might have made, you can leave me a comment on the website podcast.thelinuxexp.com. So thank you all for listening and I guess you will hear me uh, next week. Bye!